Hi, Cameron. So uh, it's really nice to have you here. And what I would like to know, what was your first programming language or your first Hello World? Do you remember that? So first programming language was actually typing in something out of a book. So uh, it was in BASIC, and I believe it was a TRS-80 Model 1 with a 1K and a tape drive. So not very exciting. Um, but the uh, first language I learned... Well, it was a combination. I was learning both uh, assembly and basic on the uh, Motorola 6500 on the Apple II. So, oh, um, this is interesting because uh, it was almost similar experience on my side. So, I had a ZX Spectrum. This was the name of the computer. It was mm -hmm. also basic, but it was 48k um, uh, RAM and had also a tape. And I had a French book with basic uh, uh, code on it but uh, I, I cannot uh, read French so what I just did I just uh, I just typed the basic stuff and and try to see what happened and uh, this was also an uh, interesting experience so so you um, see, um, and uh, what was your first program you wrote and why oh wow uh, it's been so long I'm not even sure but uh, the first ones I really remember. So I used to do graphics programming, um, shape tables and sprites were fairly tedious to build by hand. So I had built uh, um, editors that would allow you to paint the uh, paint the graphics and then it would go through and compile the uh, graphics down to a sprite or a shape table. Um, basically you had uh, uh, either move or, or plot and move instructions and uh, you could squeeze three of them into a byte because the uh, plot and move were three bits and the, the move instructions were were two bits. So you could get two plot and move and one move into a byte. And uh, uh, yeah, so that was for uh, computer games. And then, you know, back then it was pretty basic. We had eight colors and mm -hmm. very low-res graphics. Uh, but uh, it was fun. And then, uh, of course, reverse engineering, you know, Wolfenstein, uh, mm -hmm. Castle Wolfenstein and uh, what was the other one? The Broderbund one with a plane where you'd have to bomb the tank. Um, you know, so figuring out how those programs worked. Um, so I assume you learned about peak and pokes at that time, right? Uh, yeah, negative uh, 0. So uh, <laughs> I think that was the clear the keyboard buffer mm -hmm. on the Apple. Um, yeah, you had to memorize all sorts of uh, random numbers back then. How old, how old you were you at that time? About? I think I started programming when I was about eight. Hey, cool. And completely self-taught, so absolutely horrible programmer. Um, you know, I couldn't read my own code, so I'd have to, uh, I'd, whatever I was writing, I'd have to finish it in one sitting. So even these graphics editors, I had, um, I had one program, I had seven versions of it. Every one of them I wrote from scratch because I couldn't, I couldn't read the the code I had written for the previous version, so um, yeah, short, so would, short iterations, right? So it's like extreme programming. Well, basically, you know, thirty or forty hours straight programming <laughs> to get it get it to work because I could never fix it after that. Uh huh. Yeah, that, that's actually interesting. Um, and why you did it with eight? So you saw a movie, or what was actually you know the the idea? So why you started to hack you know, with with the computer? Oh, it's just incredibly interesting. I mean, um, 
I don't think it was a movie because I don't think we ever watched movies. Uh, we didn't have a TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I think we got a TV when I was eight. Um, so, but uh, yeah, I mean, computers were amazing. You could get them to print stuff out or, you know, listen to a joystick or, um, and it was, it was just amazing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is also my experience. It was like, um, for me, it was like, you know, something from a different world. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, completely out of the realm of the ordinary. It was, yeah. it was quite a challenge, too, because nothing made sense at first. And, um, yeah, so I'm not, I'm not really sure what, what what one thing got me involved in it, but I, I, found, it, I found it very interesting and uh, quite enjoyed it. So which programming languages you learned between BASIC and Java? Probably the big, big change I had in how I thought about programming was in in high school. Uh, we had a AP, which in the U.S. is an advanced placement uh, course taught by a teacher uh, in a school in Alabama. Actually, uh, her name was uh, Sandra Stisher, and uh, she taught uh, Pascal. So I I took a Pascal course, and I had never seen structured programming before in my life. Um, And it was quite revolting at first. You know, I was used to naming variables with random combinations of two characters. And, uh, you know, this this concept of uh, uh, scopes and nesting and methods, um, you know, so to give you some idea in basic, I never used GoSub. Uh, in, in assembly, I never used JSR. Um, it, you know, why would you ever need GoSub if you had GoTo? Why would you need uh, JSR if you had JMP? Mm-hmm. So, so the concept of, of structuring programming was uh, structured programming just was, was foreign, but uh, she was a, a brilliantly good teacher. Um, and uh, uh, that's when I, I first started writing code that could actually be read. <laughs> okay. And this was a Turbo Pascal, right? I assume. I think so. I think it was Turbo Pascal version three. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, that was—I think—that was on an Apple, but we also had PCs, so it was a mix. I think it was a mix of the two. Mm-hmm. And after this, so you had uh, your Pascal experience where you learned to name variables, and then, yeah. So I had, uh, you know, a couple different different languages in college as well. I didn't study computer science, but I took a, a couple courses as electives. Um, you know, so I learned things like COBOL. Um, you know, a little more assembly, some some C, C++, uh, um, a couple other languages. Uh, but um, I think really the uh, first time my my eyes were really opened was uh, uh, with Java. You know, I'd been programming in C++ for a couple of years before that. And it was, um, y- y- you could just see the, uh, the amount of thought behind the language Um you know, how much junk they were able to throw away from C++ that uh, didn't didn't really hurt the language at all to throw away. It, it dramatically helped it and uh, very little cost. Mm-hmm. And you, when when was it? JDK 1.0 before that? Or can you remember the time? Yeah, it was the beta of, uh, mm-hmm. of 1.0. So we started using it in um, late 95 or... Uh, maybe yeah, I think I think we started with in late '95 or early '96, so quite a while ago. And how you found it? So, what was your road to Java? I mean, 
have you read a magazine or? Well, uh, yeah, we were uh, one of uh, my co-founders from Tangasol and I, at the time we were working in a development tools company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we had our own proprietary language. We had our own proprietary runtime engine. What, what we was looking. the name of the company? Was well, It wasn't Tangosol, right? No, no, I'd, I'd, I'd be too embarrassed to mention it. So, um, <laughs> Okay. But the, uh, uh, the um, what we wanted to do was a cross-platform, you know, combination 16, 32-bit um, programming language. At the time, you know, Windows was moving from 16 to 32 bits. Uh, we wanted to be able to do multi-threading. We wanted to be able to do... Uh, you know, JIT compilation. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly this Java thing appeared and it did everything that we were hoping to be able to do over the next five years, except it was already doing it. So it really was a no-brainer. You know, we looked at it and we said, you know, here's something that's, at the time it wasn't quite open source. It was kind of open source, um, but it was uh, it was something we took a bet on and, uh, you know, Sun and uh, later Oracle really uh, delivered on the promise of uh, what it could do. It was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, how long was it after after the Turbo Pascal experience? So I think I had a class on Turbo Pascal in probably 88. So it was about eight years later. Oh, okay. So and uh, so there were a couple of companies later, right? So this was before TangoSol. That's right. Yeah, I... I Graduated college, I think, in 92, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I was already working um, in computer software by that time. I had a, a, a job, and I went full-time when I graduated doing application mm-hmm. development. And then, uh, so that was like Power Builder, mm-hmm. um, SQL Server, stuff like that. Um, and then uh, transitioned into this development tools company, and then uh, then we left that to, to form Tangasol back in uh, 2000. Okay, and uh, you always had the idea with caching in TangoSol, or no? Actually, we when we started the company, we didn't have any idea at all. So we were, uh, uh, I would say, fairly clueless. Um, and uh, you know, our background for for both of us at that point was uh, strongly in uh, you know four GLs um, mm-hmm. development tools, and uh, you know, we knew that there was no no business, if you will, in development tools. Developers don't have budgets. Um, you know, we had to we had to think of something that, that people could actually use for their businesses, something that would have, have value. And in the meantime, you know, we were doing a ton of work uh, consulting, um, mm-hmm. you know, what we called the uh, keep the lights on strategy, mm-hmm. uh, which basically allowed us to, to drive a certain amount of cash flow. But, uh, what, you know, while we were doing R&D, and uh, customer after customer was seeing the same problem over and over again. You know, this um, they've built these supposedly scalable J2E applications, um, and then uh, you know they'd roll them out to production, and they would they would just suck because um, you know in development they're running on you know Pentium whatever processors, you know, four hundred megahertz or something. At the time, they had a local database, they had a local web logic or whatever, and uh, everything ran really fast. Everything was in memory, everything was in cache. And then um, the uh, uh, what would happen is they'd roll it in production. It was running on these horribly slow Sun servers, 
uh, over a network, over a 100 megabit network to a database. The, the database was way bigger than what would fit in memory. And, uh, you know, they'd put it in a cluster, which would disable all the caching on the app server. Um, and it would just run horribly. So, um, you know, after about 10 different customers said, hey, is there a way you can fix this? We suddenly, you know, we realized there was an opportunity there. And that's when we we created what was called TCMP. That was a, a clustered management protocol. The Teng, That's what it stood for, actually, the Tengasol Cluster Management Protocol. Um, and uh, you may have seen it years ago in XKCD. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's there's a, a joke in there about uh, TCMP. Uh, and then... They uh, knew this. I, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> and then we... Um, uh, then we built coherence on top of that. Basically, what the protocol did is it ran on top of UDP, so we could we could do unlimited number of connections virtually over UDP with only two sockets in Java, because this was before non-blocking I/O in Java. There was no async I/O. There was no NIO. All you had was blocking I/O. And at the time, Java could only handle a few dozen sockets and a few dozen threads before it would just fall over and die. Um, and it wasn't just Java's fault. I mean, Linux sucked. Um, Java was still immature and, and not very stable for, you know, for big, big mm -hmm. RAM, big, big socket systems. Um, and uh, so we had to figure out a way to run inside, you know, run inside an app server, inside an application inside an app server. And uh, the, the TCMP protocol was the, the solution for that. Mm -hmm. And this was around 2000, I assume, right? Uh, we released 1.0 December 28th of 2001. So, okay. End of 2001. Uh, that's interesting because uh, I delivered uh, from time to time some uh, courses for Sun Microsystems. And there was one course called, I think, Architecture, Planning, and Design. And uh, Tango Sol Coherence was actually mentioned in, in the course. Hmm. And cool. uh, yeah, in uh, several courses from Sun Microsystems. And this made me really curious what is the thing? And this was like mentioned like high performance, you know. Cache and they make it, it look to me like if this were I don't know something from different world like uh, extreme scaling and extreme caching and this made me curious actually what is the thing the tangos or cover and stuff and uh, yeah this was interesting that actually this is what I'm asking and uh, these courses were between I would say 2000 and 2003 and four. And uh, yeah, um, and, and this was like example how to extend Java E with other stuff and yeah, uh, Tango Sol was mentioned. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a technically challenging area. Um, you know, when we released Coherence, there's nothing in the market that was anything like it. So, you know, there wasn't even a name for that market. So we we called it distributed caching, but there was there was no such concept. Uh, what we what we built was uh, what sometimes gets referred to as a single system image, basically. Um, it allows you to have multiple servers that all share a view, a consistent, coherent, hence the name of the product, a view of, of information across lots of different servers. Uh, and it ended up, of course, taking off. Um, you know, at Tangasol, we uh, more than doubled uh, every year we're in business. And uh, in 2007, uh, we acquired a company called Oracle. Kept the name, of course. Um, it's a good name. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, the rest is history. Mm -hmm. What interests me 
where you got the idea of the implementation? So back then, there were not a lot of algorithms back then. So this was just try and error, or you had a feeling how what, how to implement such a thing? Well, it's, yeah, it's an interesting question because, uh, you know, when we started, we were absolutely ignorant of what we're doing. Uh, I had never written any network code before in my life. Um, you know, so I... I had to had had to learn on the job, um, and uh, you know we looked at how different clustering engines that were already out there worked, and they were all awful. Um, they had you know elections and things like that, where you know a server would die, and then all the rest of the servers would get together and and basically kill each other, and um, and the system would be unavailable while they were doing that. It was just um, just not a very not a very mature market. You know, so we we came out with a uh, some some interesting concepts, and uh, you know, a lot of it. I, I, not having an academic background, I I didn't realize how much of this was already uh, you know well understood in in academia in, st- in terms of you know concepts of time and a distributed system. Um, but what we built ended up ended up being quite uh, quite prescient in in that sense that uh, we built a uh, TCMP is a an ordered point-to-point ordered uh, messaging system, but it's multi-point. So every between a, any two points within the cluster, all of the uh, messages were ordered and, uh, and guaranteed deliverable um, as long as both endpoints were, were up. And, uh, you know, there's a truism in there because if, if you can't deliver something, that is, if you can't meet that guarantee, what it meant was that one of the endpoints had to be down. And so that was part of the death detection itself. And then to establish, you know, a cadence, an initial clock, if you will, for time, each server that would join would start by announcing itself, and then it would be given information that would kind of reset its understanding of of where it stood in time. Uh-huh. And not time like what time is it on your watch, but time in terms of, um, you know, if you think about each server that joined as being like another layer you're building out on the outside of an onion, each um, each server would would basically, as part of its join protocol, would learn about all the the rings that were already there inside the onion, and to some extent, even going back to the the very creation of the cluster, even if even if the server that created the cluster initially was long since gone, right? So all of the the concepts of of causality, if you will, within a, a an event driven system had to be synchronized as part of uh, part of joining that 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 system and so it allowed us to basically create finite state machines in otherwise chaotic environments the network primarily being a chaotic environment um, and then uh, you know the net result is on top of that we were able to build membership services partitioning services you know replication services and 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 of course, having messaging as an inherent capability of the, the protocol allowed us to, you know, do data management in a in a very reliable manner uh, in a in a, sca- a dynamically scaled out environment. The um, onion layering sounds to me almost like blockchain. So if the server learns, you know, over time what happens before, so um, the at, at least the, the concepts uh, sound similar. I think so. Yep. So you also use had a concept of let's say Merkle tree and and consistent hashing already implemented there. 
So the uh, the partitioning that that I referred to uh, served as the basis for our um, uh, consistent hashing. Of course, consistent hashing wasn't a term that of course. I was yes. aware of at the time. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm not sure if if we invented it independently or uh, you know what the order of things were. Uh, but um, uh, you know, if you imagine a data domain, it's it's naturally infinite. You know, if you if you ask the question, how many keys are there? Right. Well, mm-hmm. you have an indefinite number of types, and any type can have an indefinite number of values, possibly an infinite number of values. You know, how many strings could there be? Well, it's pretty much infinite. Um, you know, so your data domain is infinite. So what we did is we took that data domain and we shrank it down to a, a 64-bit domain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you would you'd think of that as a hash code. So what a hash code does, it takes an unlimited domain and it brings it down to what's called a countable domain. And uh, so we, we then take that and we further divide it. Uh, you could think of this as a hash modulo. Um, we thir- further divide it into a number of partitions. And then... Um, the way those partitions are allocated within a cluster is called a partition assignment strategy. And then through some, you know, well thought out algorithms, those partitions can move and be dynamically reallocated and can be backed up. So you can have synchronous, you know, multiple synchronous or asynchronous copies of the data. Um, and partitioning, you know, be, what, what uh, Google calls sharding, um, the concept of partitioning is is one of the fundamental building blocks of distributed systems because it allows you to take a large problem and break it up into small pieces. And those small pieces can then be relatively evenly spread across a, a distributed environment. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, 99, uh, GNU was really, you know, the hot thing. And uh, they even came with, uh, I think it was called Java Spaces, exactly. It was like a yep. hash map. And uh, what I liked in Genie uh, was the concept of leasing. I found the idea really cool that uh, this, the like little bit inversion of control that the servers have to re-register over and over again. And if they cannot re-register, they are probably dead and they will disappear from the from the network. And uh, I was inspired by the idea. In the past, we built some clusters with that, and it worked really well. Um, were you aware of Genie back then? or So I, I, I wasn't. Actually, there were a whole bunch of things, if you couldn't tell, that I wasn't aware of. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I- I- ignorance is one of those things you only realize later. Um, okay. The, uh, so I was unaware of Genie. I was unaware of Java Spaces. I was even unaware. There was this um, Bella Bon this uh, programmer had written uh, a communication library in Java. Ah, from uh, JBoss, exactly. He ended up going to JBoss, that's right. I, I think it was called JGroups or J something. JGroups, exactly. So he had written that. We didn't know about that. So when, you know, like, so we built our, in, in a way, we built a, a custom JGroups from scratch. Um, and uh, we had no idea that any of these things already existed. Um which I guess is kind of both good and bad. It's it's bad because we probably could have gotten a faster start, but it was good because it you know we had to learn a lot of tough lessons uh, going through that effort. And um, you know when we we're done, we understood why things worked, not just whether they were working or not, but we could we could explain why something would naturally work or why something would naturally not work. Um, and uh, so yeah, um, 
But uh, on Genie, interestingly, I just met uh, just a couple of weeks ago Jim Waldo for the first time. Oh, he's the, uh, the NFS uh, guy. He's the man behind Genie and the mm-hmm. man behind Java Spaces. Um, this is Note on Distributed Computing, computing his paper, I think. Yeah, well, he's, he's famous, I guess, for, for more than one paper. So uh, he teaches at Harvard now oh. um, mm-hmm. and teaches a couple courses there. So ran into him this summer. Um, but uh, uh, the, the interesting thing I think about Ginny and Java Spaces, I never, it never, when I looked at it, I never quite got it. And I think part of the issue is that it wasn't, it wasn't like the rest of Java. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, so it didn't, um, it tended to introduce its own kind of replacement concepts for everything that was already in Java. Mm-hmm. And while its replacements may have been better, it missed out on being able to really take advantage of the uh, kind of the network effect that happened with a lot of the libraries and technologies in Java. Um, and uh, so as, as a result, I, it, I, didn't, I didn't quite get it. Um, yeah, I think uh, so the, the problem they had was they didn't have the, the killer use case. So uh, some tried to market Genie, as I remembered, like a distribution protocol for printer drivers. They had their use case over and over again, conferences. Uh, I right. say, this is just stupid. I mean, who cares about printers, right? But uh, for me, print, uh, the, the Genie could be a, a genius protocol for building clusters, for instance, even Java clusters. Because, so. uh, yeah. You, you obviously have, have heard of, there's a company called Gigaspaces. They've exactly. got a commercial uh, Java Spaces implementation. Uh, the uh, CTO there is uh, Nadi Shalom. Is uh, one of the one of the inventors of the product, um, and uh, yeah, I, so I've seen it used quite successfully in in specific applications, particularly with things like job scheduling, um, because the space becomes basically a big dumping ground of of jobs you want to get done, and then some of the verbs that are in the space API allow you to to grab you know, some of those jobs and like what you were saying with a lease, you could use a lease as a way of saying, you know, I think I can get this done in a couple of minutes, but if I don't, someone else can grab it, things like that. So there are mm-hmm. some, some, uh, certainly some, some, um, you know, I can see certain use cases. There are others, others I never quite, uh, never quite understood. Mm-hmm. Back to uh, startup strategy, you said that uh, you were not aware of uh, J groups and you implemented everything by yourself. I think if you are serious in uh, in product development, I think it's a good strategy to implement the core added value of your product by yourself, because then you really understand what's going on. You have deep knowledge and you are not depending on any critical parts from outside. So yes, I think, I, yeah. I think there are two other things that I keep in mind. And, and the first is that uh, there's an old joke that uh, Einstein, when asked for what the most powerful force in the universe was, he said, compound interest. Um, I think I think in reality, the, the most uh, powerful force is human rationalization, right? So if, if, if we want to believe something, we can always convince ourselves of it. Um, it's, it's both one of the best and one of the worst things about people. Um, so sometimes we rationalize things after the fact because it worked. And that's what we call survivor bias. And I think our industry is is rich with survivor bias. 
right? You know, in other words, I did this particular thing and I managed to sell my company for this much money. Therefore I'm brilliant and everyone else should do that one thing that I did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, survivor bias just says, well, I happen to be successful. I can't explain why. So I'll pick some random, uh, you know, some random thing. So I'm not, I'm, I like code reuse and I like, you know, the ability to take things that other people have spent time on and, and, and use them as modules and use them as libraries. So um, while I agree that, you know, it was good in our case, I, I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a safe thing to assume is always good. <laughs> a survivor bias is actually interesting. So um, in my opinion, if uh, you, you made the survivor bias experience, but your solution was simple, you were right. I think if someone from outside can look what you did and say, okay, uh, I understand what you did and this is really that simple, I think then you were right. But if your solution was crazy complicated you know, and no one gets it but just you, I don't think you were right, except your domain is also complex. And usually what I see in projects, you know, there are trivial use cases and uh, they try to apply rocket science just to have create, read, update, delete to a database. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples of things that we did early on that became just critically good decisions in retrospect. Um, one of them was because we were targeting web logic and web sphere environments uh, for these deployments, we had to figure out how to get our code inside an application and still have it work. And, and what I mean is that our library, our coherence stuff couldn't be on the class path. It couldn't be installed into a web logic, nothing like that. It actually had to hide inside the application ear file, you know, the zip that gets renamed as an ear that, that holds the entire application in Java EE. That, so we had to hide inside that application file as a, as a library. And somehow when that application got loaded, we had to miraculously cluster together every instance of that application running on every instance of that server without any human interaction, without knowing what the IP addresses were, uh, w- without any of those things. So basically what we allowed a developer to do was to build their application, put a config file in there for our software that would specify what the application was, you know, so it wouldn't accidentally talk to other applications, which unfortunately has happened. Um, and then uh, take that um take that application, deploy it, and have it automatically form a cluster, you know, in that runtime environment, you know, without any additional permissions being given, without any, you know, hoops to go through with the deployment people and so on. And so that forced us to architect the software in a certain way. And it turned out to to force us down a path that, that made the software much, much more simple to use. So basically the first time someone touched our API from within the application, we would go through all that work in the background to form the cluster, to join the cluster, if it weren't already there to create the cluster, you know, to configure it, to all those things that had to be done to set it up. So they, you know, they would call some API to get some piece of cache data. And in the meantime, we would have, you know, built the cluster, populated the data, gone out to a database and so on and, and answered, you know, answered that API call as if, as if the data were already there. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how the environment that you're targeting can have a 
dramatically positive impact if you know what you're what you're targeting it can have a dramatically positive impact on the design because it allows you to simplify for that target right so it 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 gave us a, a great very specific target uh, to optimize for and 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 to not just optimize from a performance standpoint but to optimize from a, a usability standpoint and a um a manageability standpoint and a configurability standpoint. Yeah, this is a like constraint uh, environment. So you cannot do, you know, whatever you like because you have to live within Java. So uh, exactly. then you have to be laser focused on what you are doing. And I think this constraining yourself is a really good thing. So in my Java E projects, I'm trying to delete as, as much stuff as possible and just focus on Java E. And uh, the interesting part is that you can achieve a lot without external libraries. Your deployable is very small, and the developers really like it because everyone can understand your code. So I think this uh, this constraining yourself says, okay, I don't you know I don't like to use the whole world to solve one problem. I just use just this because, and this because is important. If you don't know why you are doing, in my opinion, the system is really hard to maintain because no one else know, knows how to deal with that. But if you can say, okay, this is my choice because I would like not to be dependent on something or I would like to keep my stuff small or I would like to be independent from uh, from the third-party libraries, then there is a good thing. That's right. There's a, there's a tremendous value to simplicity. Mm -hmm. You don't want to simplify everything, but the more things that you can choose to keep simple, the more flexibility it gives you in other areas. And most applications have, you know, only one or two areas that are naturally complex. And that's where you want to be able to bring, you know, all of your magic tricks to bear, if you will, as an engineer, as, a, as an architect. You don't want to be just throwing fireworks at every problem in the uh -huh. application. You want, you want 99% of the application to be simple and, and focus all of your exceptions, if you will. They, they are exceptional in terms of how you design for those specific problems. You know, you think about something, you know, any particular application, there tends to be a, a long tail of design that's very boring stuff. You know, I have to enter these code tables and I have to manage this data and so on. But there tends to be, at the, at the front end of that curve, there tends to be something that's just off the charts on the y-axis, right, on the y-axis in terms of whether it's, um, if it's a data-intensive application, there may be one or two tables that compose 99% of the data in the application. So, you know, if you get the indexing right on the other 99% of the tables, it doesn't matter. Uh -huh. There's no noticeable difference in performance. If you don't get the indexes perfect on those one or two tables that compose all that data, the application will be horrible. Like, and you can think of this like in the early days of Twitter, you know, when they stuck one. everything in one big table and, uh, you know, used Ruby you know, very simple Ruby code to go after it. And they, they just, you know, the, the, the Twitter fail whale was, 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 was quite often the, uh -huh. the, the result. You know, you have to optimize for that. If you will, it's, it's just like in computer science when we talk about big O, right? You look for the parts of the application uh -huh. that have the exponential impacts, whether it's on performance or complexity or whatever, those are those are the areas you know those those are the areas that make or break the application. You know, Absolutely. so by keeping by keeping everything else simple and hopefully uniform in how you architect and how you design a system, it allows you then to bring all of that 
capacity of of the things that you would do exceptionally to handle the the strangenesses of those requirements it lets you bring all of those to bear on just those very small number of points within the system or within the application that 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 require that that focus mm-hmm. um have you fun had had you fun during the development i mean fun not just enjoying writing code but uh, was it also funny to work with the other developers so you was it like funny and 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 interesting environment or you all you and your colleagues and tango soul and later oracle were heads down and just hacking so what was <laughs> the you know the team experience this is what i'm really curious right now yeah we had a we had an excellent team um you know a couple of our engineers were actually pushed onto us um, from companies where they were working and highly appreciated, but um, unhappy. And so, you know, we had friends at those companies who would say, I need you to hire this person. He's a brilliant engineer, you know, um, y- y- trust me, just hire him. And that's actually our first, uh, our first external engineering hire that we didn't know when we started the company uh, came that way. Um, and, uh, you know, he ended up just, being absolutely, you know, he ended up uh, building our extend protocols and our our POF, our portable object format uh, implementations. Um, you know, and, and as you as you attract good engineers, good a- good engineers attract good engineers. And uh, not only that, good engineers make other engineers better. So you really want to have an environment. Um, you know, people talk about A players and B players and whatnot. It's pretty bad way to look at it what you really want to look at is you know can i bring engineers together who can not only you know understand the problems that they have to solve and solve them but while doing that can they get better every day can each you know each day can they learn something from the people they're working with can they can they somehow by the end of that day have a a little more knowledge or a little better technique you know and it's 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 almost like a game where you're perfecting you know your ability to go through each level one after another and, and software development is like that it's it's quite often like a game where you know when you're enjoying it and playing it well with people you enjoy playing it with every day you end the day somehow better than when you started and it's a it's a it's a great feeling when it works yeah, this is very like endurance sports also, you know. So you have to improve a little bit, have lots of fun, and then on one point of time there will be a reward, which is usually end of project, product, or something like this. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, um, but exactly this is really hard to understand by higher-level management. I assume you were a manager at one point of time, but I'm working with managers. They have no sense, you know, of of exactly this experience that developers are more like, yeah, like uh, like like athletes, which uh, try to improve them themselves from from day to day, and uh, you know they think developers are replaceable and all developers are equals, and they try offshore, nearshore, and whatever. And what I observed in my in my uh, consultant life, actually, offshore and nearshore, it never worked because the the problem was not the technology; the problem was understanding of the domain, and this is. If you start, you know, to specify what should be done, I think it is easier just to to sit down and write it. So this is not not easier. This is faster and 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 cheaper. And um, what I also experienced is um, in projects which which worked, 
the um, the developers had fun and uh, they worked a lot without notice that. So they just um, they just enjoyed the work and uh, so we had lo- lots of fun and um, and uh, we built sometimes interesting stuff and projects which didn't work that well. They were more serious, more I would say overorganized, micromanaged, and stuff like that. This was my. This is my observation as consultant. So I never build a product. I just spend my time in projects and um, custom implementations. Yeah, and I think you know to be to be fair to the the um, pointy-haired boss and Dilbert, uh, you know, software is an interesting phenomenon in a couple different ways. If you look historically at at careers, because first of all. Good engineers are expensive. There's there's absolutely no doubt that you know our occupation, because of its level of specialization, and uh, f- for whatever reason, I mean, we we do get paid well as as engineers, and so you know a company does have to set aside a pretty significant amount of money to to build anything of significant size. But the other side of it is, you know, when you have someone build a house for you. You know, you come along on the first day and they've cut some trees down, and the second day they've dug a hole in the ground, and the third day they've put some cement there, and the fourth day there's some some boards showing up, and you know, each each day you can actually see progress. And a lot of things in software, you don't have that that experience. You can't touch it. You can't often you can't see it, and so much investment goes into a project before you see any of it emerge, if you will, above, you know, above sea level, you know, so it's, it's all like hidden under the, uh, under the sea for so long. And you, as a manager who doesn't understand that process, who hasn't been through that process of building stuff, I can totally understand how, if they haven't had the chance to build faith, to build trust with that team, how it must be difficult for them to look at this flat surface of the water and take your word that underneath that you're building the most gorgeous pyramid ever. Yeah. It's, so it's, um, it, 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 it is understandable that, that there would be that concern. But I think, I think trust is that, that aspect that makes it work when you have a team that has delivered, whether that means they've, you know, successfully built something before from scratch or whether it just means that they've been able to achieve, you know, something for the business already that, that shows that they are dependable, that they understand the values that the business places on what they are, what they are doing. Having that trust in place then makes it, makes it easy to imagine what's going on under, you know, under that sea level is actually something worth waiting, waiting to see pop out, you know, from, from, from the depths. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, just switching the gears, uh, before the show, you asked me why I pink you at all. And, uh, the, uh, the, the first, um, the first reason was the, uh, you know, mentioning Tango Soul coherence several times in my, um, Sun Microsystems training, so it was mentioned in the training materials. But mm. then I remember at Java 1, and I think it was Oracle time, you had a picture on Twitter, I couldn't find it again, where mm. your seat was reserved and 
and the name on the on the on the seat was like Lord of something, and this was really funny. I don't know. You remember that? I do. Um, yes, what I was, was it? What was the name? This was like, uh, and I couldn't find it again. But um, it was Lord of something, right? Well, they would ask me, "What do you want on? You know, what 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 title do you want on the the sign?" And so I <laughs> exactly. I was always a, I was always the bad kid in school. So um, yeah, so. I, I'm sure whatever answer I gave them was uh, <laughs> was not corporate approved. Okay, but it was there, and I said, "This is this is incredible." And um, so um, my impression is that you are actually com so from the behavior from outside completely different than the others, and th this this is fascinating me because uh, this are you no know, larger company; they have rules, and and everyone you know they follow the rule. And you are a little bit different, and and this this is was also interesting experience to me. And um, did it work for you, or and or uh, yeah, uh, did you have trouble with your uh, attitude? Oh, I, I certainly got in trouble more than a few <laughs> times. <laughs> in, in in the last time, of course, um, was 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 final in a sense. Uh, the <laughs> so I, I'm very good at getting in trouble. Uh, the um, but you know, to be honest, uh, you know, the great number of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, people in management in a company like Oracle that, um, that have, uh, have a great sense of humor and, and, you know, are, are within their teams are, are truly motivating and, uh, you know, have great vision and, and so on. Um, but it's, it's, there's, there's always a tendency in a large organization to minimize your risk when you go outside of that safety zone, you know, so as a, as a manager, you know that at some point you don't want your head being the one that's sticking up when everyone else's is ducked down, right? So a lot of people avoid um, avoid being noticed, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I just never learned that trick. Okay. And uh, what I also saw on your Twitter or your, your LinkedIn, this is World Luckiest Guy, and uh, on your Twitter – Abstract is like I'm the famous actor and so forth. So it's also funny, and this is what I like actually. And uh, what I what I ask myself because we never had the chance, you know, to speak at conference. So I think we were at one buff or something, and you were at Oracle side, and I was on the other side. I don't even know what it was. Was it like a Java E FAQ, so, yes. something like this. Whether uh, you know, are you actually funny, or you try, you know, to how to call it to uh, subvert or destroy the system to say, okay, I'm <laughs> <laughs> let's see what happens if I do this, right? And observe what happens. So this is actually, this was, I asked whether you had, you know, fun during development, fun speaking, lots of laughing and, uh, you know, jokes and stuff like that. Or you just, you know, serious, but you do some stuff to, and see what happens. Um. I think I think I'm hoping it's more on the fun side. No, I've never <laughs> considered myself never considered myself subversive. Um, you know, our our greatest joys as as a team were seeing people use what we built. I mean, there's no feeling like that in in terms of you know you've you, you've built something, you've poured time and effort into it, and you know, and someone else gets to pick it up and use it. And somehow in using it, they see, they, they get a glimpse 
mm-hmm. of what you were thinking when you designed it. They they get a glimpse of of the work, the effort you put into shaping it for them, for their problem, for their challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And they come back and they say to you, you know, that's how I would have designed it. And it, to me, that's like the greatest compliment to an engineer is for another engineer to look at something they've built and to say, that's how I would have designed it. Because what they're saying is, you know, as an engineer, you basically pick apart everything you see, right? It's like, uh, you've probably seen the Dilbert cartoon where he's like standing over the TV repairman and the TV repairman looks up at him and says, you're an engineer, aren't you? (laughs) Um, You know, it's like, we so naturally want to understand how everything works and we want to show people how to fix their problems, you know, or, you know, uh, sometimes it doesn't work so well with the spouse. Um, you know, it's like, we want to fix everything. We want to design everything. And so when you build something and, and people can pick it up and use it and do something with it, solve some problem with it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Exactly. Um, Uh So I, I, I would say that was, that was always, you know, I still get a kick out of it. Yeah. Then the next question, have you became bored with the Tango solo coherence development or uh, you say, I would like to do something else or there were still use cases to be implemented from your point of view? Oh yeah. There were definitely a lot of, a lot of things we still wanted to do. Um, Uh So there's, there's quite a list, um, you know, I left. Uh, I left three years ago, and there's there's code I wrote before I left that they're still they're still working on figuring out how to get into the product. So, um, yeah, so it's a it's a pretty limitless area in terms of what the the potential is for for what you can uh, the types of problems you can solve. Um, and distributed systems are just exciting. You know, getting multiple servers to work together without things crashing is, is quite, uh, <laughs> quite a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, distributed systems are almost, almost, I would say mission impossible. Right. So, um, it is, um, you know, you are probably, in, yeah, you have to be aware of the cap cap theorem, right? Consistency, availability and partition tolerance. Yes. And, um, uh, so, uh, it is really hard to have everything. And this is actually, the uh, most interesting part to to have the trade-offs done right for for your mm-hmm. clients and and projects, and um, yeah, this is this is really exciting, right? Um, yeah, I think uh, the cap theorem is kind of a bit of a truism because it basically says if you can't communicate, you have to give up something, and it's like yeah, that makes sense. I can I can see that. I'm in a distributed system and I can't communicate. That's the P, the network partition. Um, yeah, if I can't communicate. I'm either going to have to stop, which is the uh, A, the availability, or I'm going to have to tolerate inconsistency. So that coherence, the consistency is the C. So you have consistency, you have availability, uh, and you have network uh, uh, partition tolerance. Mm -hmm. So when you partition, partition meaning you break the network, you can't communicate, you know, something has to give, and it's either going to be uh, availability, or it's going to be consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was this cap was really hard to understand, so really hard to get it. And uh, what I always do, I try to rephrase it for myself. And what I do is say, okay, look, we have, let's say, two hash maps in Java on two nodes, two JVMs. And mm-hmm. if we try to synchronize the data um, consistently, uh, 
um, or yeah, to sync the data or replicate the data consistently, it has to be synchronous because the client will have to wait until it arrives in both on both nodes. If it's synchronous, because it is a distributed system, it actually cannot scale because the more nodes we get, the slower it gets. Mm. And uh, it is not getting uh, slower in um, of, of N, so in the, um, um, verse so I, want you to, I want you to turn around though and think about it completely differently because that's that is kind of a traditional what you described as a traditional way to look at a distributed system but I, I want you to like imagine in your mind a piece of data mm-hmm. right so just one piece it's not a hash map it's just one piece of data we'll call it X right mm-hmm. it's not about synchronizing X data the concept of synchronizing is kind of a concept of instantaneousness and data is not instantaneous data flows. It doesn't exist. It flows. What I mean by that is if I say X equals one, you know, you heard me say X equals one, but you're on the other side of the world, right? You actually heard me some period after I said X equals one. You didn't know that because, because everything you experience is from inside your skull, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you only know what message, if you will, what event enters your ears or your eyes, right? But but I said it before then. And then then if you say X equals two, you know, theoretically, if 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 sound were moving, you know, <laughs> slow enough between us, mm-hmm. you could say X equals two and I could say X equals five at the same time. And those those events, those ripples across the surface of the water could cross, you know, between us, mm-hmm. right? And a distributed system isn't two parties. A distributed system is N parties, right? So so take that concept and it's now just ripples upon ripples, right? It's 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 far more complicated than synchronizing. So you're you're absolutely right that to approach it as we would in a single threaded system, as we would even in a multi-threaded system using, say, a synchronized keyword in Java, is is inherently unscalable. But um you know, the, the challenge is that we're using languages that were all designed, all imperative languages designed around a single von Neumann machine, a single CPU executing one instruction after another. So even with Java, where we have a language that's inherently, its runtime is inherently multi-threaded, multi-thread, you know, uh, concurrent, the language itself is not a concurrent language. The Everything we've learned you know, is uh, what what uh, what Bacchus in his um, uh, Turing Award acceptance speech referred to as you know word at a time, uh, you know thinking. In other words, you know all we're doing is 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 scheduling you know a sequence of of instructions and of you know moving words back and forth across a memory bus. You know, in some in some sequential concept, but a distributed system is not inherently sequential. So if we want to use the concepts that we have in programming languages to work with a system like that, what we have to do is we have to imagine that that X is something, right? Like it exists somewhere. Who, who knows where? Who cares where? But every, every time we want to work with X, we don't send what we decided to change about X, what we do is we send X the message. So think about it almost object orientation wise. If you want X to change to two, you don't say X equals two. You send a message to X and you say, hey, X, I need you to update yourself. I I want you to be two. 
And then X has the ability to say yes or no. Mm -hmm. And if anyone's interested in X, they will have already told X, hey, I'm interested. If you change, let me know. So now X, X knows who's interested. And X then goes through and it sends out that information. And because it's the one sending all of the information about its own state, if you hear X equals two and X equals five and X equals seven, you're hearing them in order because they're coming from X to you. Mm -hmm. Right? So it allows you to build, it allows you to model and construct a system based on the flow of information, not based on the concept that there's an exact state at any time of the information, but rather that that information, if you will, flows over you from whatever point you stand within that distributed system. So it's a much, a much different way of looking at uh, distributed architecture. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so your point is like uh, you have the state and you have a set of commands. They are ordered. And if they arrive, they change the state. So like uh, the messages or transactions or whatever. F for me, Very small talk issue. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, Yeah, or even, you know, there is uh, the small talk issue. Now we have uh, similar concepts in Kafka and the others uh, try to do the same over and over again with different names. But just yep. for me, I say, uh, this was not even the synchronization from the Java perspective, but just the basic understanding or how I how I explain it to my clients or developers. I say, look, if we try to keep something really consistent, we have to look it up. And this is impossible. And if we do it uh, asynchronously, um, then it cannot be the same state on all nodes because we are asynchronous and we could scale in very well, but uh, this, this, this cannot be consistent as you think of. So it means not right. all cluster nodes will have the same state. This is actually how it works. And because this is the how, it, how the distribution works, we will have to invent something else. So we need a different look at the business logic and whatever. And what you explained to me is would be like the solution to the problem, what you could do to improve the user experience, right? Right. Perfect. And we had another saying, which was uh, only God knows. And, and what that means is that in a distributed environment, there is no concept of now. There is no concept of the current state of the system, exactly. right? Because the state of the system isn't like some, you know, whiteboard somewhere that everything's written on. The state of the system is all of that information flowing all the time. And it's being perceived differently based on where you are in the system, right? Because, you you know, while your communication with any other part of the system may be ordered, the the, the ordering across the entire system is not what they call total ordering, meaning... Mm -hmm. The events are not witnessed in the same order by every node within the distributed system because it's terribly – the only expensive part of a distributed system is guaranteeing order. Mm -hmm. So the more you attempt to guarantee the order, whether that's um, total ordering or whatever, the, and what we call consistency is actually not consistency. It's order. Mm -hmm. like consistency is just the, the residual of order, if mm -hmm. you will. So consistency is a side effect of order. Um, so when you uh, you have to model, you have to think about you know the the information flowing, not you know not being, but flowing. Mm -hmm. In uh, one project, a client asked me there were reports, and uh, clients would, wanted to have you know absolutely up to date reports. So uh, they they asked about the refresh button. And then WebSockets uh, updates and whatever. 
And what we mm -hmm. did at the end, we say, okay, we just printed the time the timestamp of the report generation on the report. And this changed everything because the client, if they looked at the report, they knew, okay, the report was from today um, 1 p.m. and 10 seconds or whatever. And this is this is absolutely true. And, uh, and this solved all the problems. This was the simplest possible solution and the client was absolutely happy. But before, it, what they actually wanted is that from, I don't know, just by magical thinking, the browser will refresh itself or will be absolutely synchronized with the state of the database or even worse, with the state uh, of the report which will, has to be generated. So it will take some time for the generation. So it was, per definition, no more consistent or no more valid. And just you know, just printing, you know, the timestamp of generation, it solved everything. Right. Yeah, so basically what they were, <laughs> they're kind of after serializability, not just of the database, but of the reports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so um, mm -hmm. yeah, a reporting engine with a with a, uh, a, a a consistency and isolation layer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So as consultant, you see uh, lots of interesting ideas, you know. Okay, Cameron, it was really nice to talk with you. Um, where people can find you, or uh, you know. Or on the internet, for instance, have you some references? Or well, I uh, I I do have a Twitter account, uh, mm -hmm. C Purdy on on Twitter. Um, you know, our our uh, our startup that I've been working on since uh, since I left Oracle is is still uh, still underground, so to speak. We're we're not uh, we're not yet uh, showing everything we've built, but mm -hmm. um, uh, been been doing some fun stuff for the uh, three years since I left Oracle and. Uh, Hoping to uh, have something to show before too long. Hey, cool. Um, you mentioned Oracle now several times. So um, your, t your title at Oracle was actually pretty impressive. What was it? Was president of development or something like this, right? Uh, senior vice president. Senior vice president of development of Java. Well, how was it exactly? You know, remember so that? Java, Java EE, and um, WebLogic, Coherence, uh, JDBC, stuff like that. Okay. So and what, what we called middleware. Yeah, yeah, but your title was senior president of Java development, senior vice president, senior vice president of Java. Project. <laughs> yes. Okay, and uh, what's uh, was really incredible? You told me ten minutes ago that you still hack the code, right? So, um, being a vice president, you found some time to write code, right? Mostly on vacation. Ah, okay, <laughs> but it's still. I mean, this is. Uh, I think this is not very often something like this, right? No, but I, you know, I have the bug, right? I have, I, I enjoy building things. So, um, uh, you know, while, while my day job was, 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 uh, quite consuming of my time at work, you know, I still, I still enjoyed, um, you know, being able to get in and look at the, the products in my, my group and, uh, um, occasionally to contribute some, some ideas and even some code. Yeah. Uh, then the last question for today is, uh, did you enjoy the non-coding work actually? So um, there's kind of two parts to that answer. <laughs> it's a very sneaky question. Uh, <laughs> you know, the first is there's a tremendous amount of inertia in a large company and, you know, they have meetings. And in a company like Oracle, it is quite possible outside of the uh, you know, at any level 
above just, you know, pure grunt programmer. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's possible to spend 10 hours a day, five days a week in meetings mm-hmm. and never do anything of value. Just, just meet. And every week, the meeting is a copy of the week before. Mm-hmm. And so there's no progress week to week. You just sit in the same meeting, hear the same reports from the same people, almost verbatim. I mean, they could they could record it like we're recording this conversation and just play it back week after week. Um, so that part I did not enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the people, yeah, I, I love the people part of being a manager. Uh, you know, when you, when you hire someone or, you know, whether, you know, or you, you acquire a company or, um, or someone's transferred into your organization and you have the ability to, you know, find a role for them that fits their talents and you, you put them into a team that matches their, uh, you know, their personality, uh, you know, when you can mentor people or when you see people grow as, you know, whether as a leader or as a, as an engineer, it, it is really it is rewarding. It is, you know, it is, uh, you know, to see someone, you know, I just talked last night with a, a guy that worked for me at Oracle. Um, he's a, a CTO somewhere now, a public company that he went to as a startup and now they're public. And, you know, he's just a brilliant engineer and to have seen him grow in that career from, you know, from a, from an engineer to a manager, engineer to a, to a man, to a, you know, basically a pure manager and a CTO and, you know, to an entrepreneur. It's, it's just, it's fantastic to see that. Um, I get a real kick out of it. Hey, cool. Now we have to stop. So now let's proceed with that the next time. I really thank you and see you next time. Thank you, Adam. Great to talk to you.